Well, turn this morning, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 down through verse 19 to kind of put things in perspective. Then our focus will be on verses 12 through 19. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures." And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born. He appeared to me also, (coughs) for I am the least of the apostles, whom not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And shall we pray? Father, we come again before thee and thank you that you are a God that hears prayer. I thank you for uh, the opportunity to convey your precious word this morning and pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help me to communicate your holy word in a way that is really Um, accurate in a way that is in line with your holy intention for it. So I pray that you would work in our souls. I pray you'd give us ears to hear and a heart to understand and make application. So we commit our time to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the resurrection of Christ is uh, one of the most well-attested doctrines in all of Holy Scripture. Uh, Jesus himself, uh, during his earthly ministry, foretold of going to Jerusalem and being killed in the third day, being raised up to new life. Uh, The the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. When Judas died, he had to be replaced by one who was a witness to the resurrection. Uh, When you read in the Acts of the Apostles, the the theme of the resurrection is found over and over again. It's a central theme of their preaching. 
Um, and, and at least to my own mind, Jesus being raised from the dead is really what sets true Christianity apart as a supernatural religion. Uh, God alone has the power to raise the dead. Uh, we live in a time of great technological advances, and um, which is amazing, at least to my own mind. I'm a beneficiary, especially of the medical improvements of our time. But the fact of the matter is, man cannot raise the dead. Uh, the resurrection marks, the resurrection of Christ marks evangelical Christianity as a supernatural religion. And also, I would add, one of the glories of the, of the gospel, it, it's really the application of resurrection power to the soul. One who is dead and trespasses and sins is raised up by resurrection power to a new life in Christ. Our Lord, on one occasion, as you will recall, was conversing with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. This is in John chapter 3. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And we might ask, well, what's all that about? Well, 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, the chapter, at least a part of the chapter that I read, 1 Corinthians 15, this is one of the great and informative chapters in the Bible on this particular theme. And the emphasis in verses 1 through 11 is on the fact of the resurrection, and especially the centrality of it as it relates to the biblical gospel. Just to reread a part of what I noted earlier, it talks about the gospel, and then verse 3, for in terms of the content of the gospel, for I delivered to you first of of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. However, in, in spite of this, um, when you get to verse 12, there were some in the church who were saying, there is no resurrection from the dead. Um, this is one of the many issues that Paul had to deal with in this particular letter. He had to respond to the idea of Christians taking Christians to, to court, to secular court, um, there was a case of immorality in the church that was worse than what was going on in the world. And people, this is kind of an amazing thought, but people were actually coming to the Lord's table drunk. And then there were some who were saying there's no resurrection from the dead. You might read this and think, how come Paul just didn't say, close the doors on this place? Uh, if, if you knew somebody that was thinking about going to a church like this, you'd probably tell them, don't go there. It's a theological and moral mess. I, there's other places you could go. But what, what Paul does is he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he deals with each issue, and then he just gives instruction on what should be done. And in verses 12 through 19, he, he responds to this matter of some are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead, which is a critical gospel issue, because if there is no resurrection from the dead, we see from verse 13, then Christ himself has not been raised from the dead. Um, so uh, Paul approaches it in the form of a question. He says, how... Does some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? And he responds, in effect, by, by saying, okay, suppose you're right. Uh, okay, kind of hypothetically speaking, let's say there is no resurrection from the dead. He knows that there is. He's persuaded that there is. But just for the sake of argument, let's just say you're right. So he begins in verse 13 by indicating then not even Christ would be raised from the dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ would be raised from the dead. And this leads to four basic consequences. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, it leads to four eventualities that also must be true. In our time remaining this morning, I think we've got about, what, two hours left, so we should be good. But 
in our time remaining in verses 12 through 19, we're going to look at four consequences that must be true if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And as we consider these, I'll I'll call them necessary implications of denial, I think it will also facilitate an appreciation for the reality and the fact of the true resurrection. So we'll look at these four consequences that must be true if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And then I'll I'll close with a thought or, or two about how to benefit, how can one benefit from the resurrection. So, number one, consequence number one, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the whole gospel is subverted. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, the, the, the whole foundation of the gospel is thrown out. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Uh, the experts tell us this little word then is an inferential particle. It brings out the logical consequence. If Christ has not been raised, then this is what must follow, or this is what be, must, must be true. Four additional, under this first heading, four additional considerations. The term preaching here has fundamental reference not to the act of preaching, but to the message, to the substance, to the content of preaching. It looks back to verse 11, where Paul says, whether then... It was I or they, we preach and you believed. And, and so the, the emphasis here is on the message, on the content of the message. Then secondly, the term vain can mean uh, without basis, without truth, without power, or the, or the idea of empty, hollow, without substance. Then thirdly, if the message itself is without substance and empty, the kind of faith it produces will lack substance and also be empty. In other words, if the empty, if, if, the, if, the, 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 if the message itself is vain, the faith it produces will be vain. If the message is without power, the, message, the, the faith it produces will also be without power. A faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But if, if the message is defective, so will the faith it produces also be defective. So there's a correspondence between the quality of the kind of message and the kind of faith that it produces. Charles Hodge said, If Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain, empty, void of all truth, reality, power. And your faith is also empty. It is groundless. In Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Not if Christ was not raised from the dead. It is not the power of God unto salvation. Number four under this heading, we notice here, and this is kind of a little bit in the broader context of verses 12 to 19. We notice if Christ was not raised from the dead, that logically and consequentially, um, other truths are not valid either. Uh, Charles Hodge wrote, um, errorists seldom see the consequences of the false doctrines they embrace. They don't think about, what will it lead to if I embrace this or that doctrine? One commentator wrote, so central are the truth claim and event of the resurrection of Christ that if the linchpin is removed, a whole multitude of dependent derivatives will collapse. You might think of it like dominoes if you have can picture six or seven dominoes that are up on, on the end and they're in a row and they're about a half inch apart and, and you, you hit the first one, then they all go down. And you see the same kind of thing here. You start with, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then the first domino would be, even Christ, then not even Christ is raised. That's kind of the starting point. Then our preaching is vain. The message is empty. Your faith is vain. It comes to nothing. The apostles are false witnesses. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep have perished. It's like a theological implosion. Everything else falls apart. So first consequence of denying the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the gospel is subverted at the most basic level. The message itself is empty and produces a faith that partakes of the same quality, vain. It comes to nothing. 
So a second consequence of the denying the resurrection of Christ from the dead would be that those who promote the resurrection, who actually believe it, they're liars. If there is no resurrection from the dead, those who are promoting it and say that there is a resurrection, they are liars. Verse 15, moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. Uh, to be found is the idea of, of to be discovered. Uh, they're discovered to be false witnesses. They were giving false testimony. The false witness, the, the apostles, that is, would be discovered to be false witnesses. Uh, two facets of this phrase, found to be false witnesses. It's kind of repetitive, but if there's no resurrection from the dead, the apostles were liars. I think that's the right way to put it. There, there's a culpability on their part because it was deliberate misrepresentation. Um, they said they were eyewitnesses to the event. They said they were eyewitnesses to the event of the resurrection. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, said this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And then in his another sermon, a second sermon, in the Acts of the Apostles, you, you disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask for a murder to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Anthony Thieselton wrote, The apostles became exposed as liars. We shall be found out, discovered to be false witnesses. Secondly, what's worse, they are, were ascribing to God something which he did not do. They are saying God did something which, in fact, he did not do. The apostles would be found to those who were boldly, repetitively attributing this activity to God, which, in fact, he was not responsible for if, God, if Christ was not raised from the dead. So it would be impugning the character of God. Gordon Fee wrote, even worse, it's a lie carried out in God's name. So by implication there, denial of the resurrection of the dead finally implicates God himself because we borne witness against God that he raised Christ from the dead. We've accused God falsely of doing something he did not in fact do if the Corinthians are right. That is, if some of the Corinthians were right. So if there's no resurrection from the dead, the preaching, the message is of no avail. Correspondingly, our faith is vain. The apostles were, in fact, false witnesses. They were assigning to God an activity for which he was not responsible. Then a, a third consequence, and I think the the third and the fourth consequences will really help us to, these are consequences of denial, but I think that they'll help us to see how glorious the true resurrection really is. But thirdly, the third consequence of denying the reality of the resurrection is that sin retains its destructive and damaging control. Sin maintains, if there is no resurrection, sin maintains its destructive and damaging control. Notice verse 17 it says, if Christ has not been raised, then two other things are true. One is your faith is worthless. And the second is you are still in your sins. That's an ominous phrase, isn't it? You are still in your sins. You see the same kind of phrase in John chapter 8. You are still in your sins. So Paul, he's picking up here on, <clears throat> on part of verse 14 where it says your faith is vain. And here he says your faith is worthless. Uh, very much the same thought, empty, useless powerless, devoid of significance. And, and the reason your faith is worthless is you're still in your sins. It didn't get you out of your sins. It didn't deliver you from that. Let me just kind of elaborate on this in two respects. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, the text says you are still in your sins. Frederick Godet indicates that means a state of condemnation arising from unpardoned sins. Charles Hodge 
says it's to be under the condemnation of sin. To teach there is no resurrection is to teach that there is no atonement, no pardon for sin. And then secondly, in this connection, it's important to understand that the resurrection of Christ was a vindication of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The resurrection was a vindication of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The raising of his son from the dead, it's a declaration of approval on God's part of what he accomplished on the cross. Uh, Thomas Schreiner wrote, When God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration he accepted Christ's suffering and death as a full payment for sin. Now we read in the, in the New Testament, as you're aware of, there's other redemptive accomplishments things that, that Christ achieved when he died on the cross. Uh, justification is an accomplishment of redemption. Um, Romans 5, 9, much more having been justified by his blood. Reconciliation, it's an accomplishment of redemption, the death of Christ on the cross. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Propitiation, it's, it's an accomplishment of Christ on the cross, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So the resurrection, it's the assurance that God the Father approved and accepted everything that the Lord accomplished on the cross. His death was an atonement. It was, an, a, payment, it was a payment for all the sins of all the people whom the Father had given to the Son. If Christ was not raised from the dead, there, there's no assurance that our sins have been pardoned there's no assurance that we are forgiven for our sins we're still in a state of condemnation we're still liable to punishment um well because he was raised from the dead we can say of course there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ again thomas schreiner since paul sees christians as united with christ in his death and resurrection God's approval of Christ at the resurrection results in God's approval also of all who are united to Christ and in this way results in their justification. Well, then a, a fourth consequence of denying the reality of the resurrection is to realize that those who have died are irretrievably lost. Those, if there is no resurrection, then those who have died, professing Christians who have died, they're irretrievably lost. Verse 18 goes on to the next logical consequence of rejecting the, the fact and the validity of, of the resurrection, um, then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Uh, Charles Hodge says to fall asleep in Christ is to, um, is to die in the faith or in communion with Christ so, uh, for salvation. And because death is inescapable, not I think, let me rephrase that, because death is inescapable, um, because all of us will die, something we all have in common, one of the glories of being a Christian is the, the assurance that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, in First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, we must, we must grieve, because then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Um, they're, they're being punished for their sins that were never atoned for on the cross. In the Bible, the term perish means to be eternally lost. Charles Hodge wrote, uh, perdition, according to Scripture, it's not um, annihilation, but everlasting misery. It's the, the loss of holiness and happiness forever. It's a term that describes um, the certain future of unsaved people. If they continue to reject the gospel, they will perish. It, it, it describes their condition. Second Corinthians 4, 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. First Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. In Second Thessalonians, 
2.10, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Hodge writes, the lost are those who are in a state of perdition and who are certain if they continue to reject the gospel, who are certain to perish forever. Now, the Bible gives a very sobering picture of what this looks like. I think this will be helpful in facilitating appreciation of the resurrection. But, I mean, what does perishing look like on the other side? And and these are words from Luke chapter 16 that help us to understand what this really means. In verse 19 of Luke 16, it says, There was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in, in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And these next verses give us a clear picture of what this parish looks like on the other side. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able And that none may cross over from there to us. That's kind of a picture of what it means to perish in in the world to come. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then even those who have professed faith in Christ, they have perished. They they have died in their sins. They died in a state of condemnation. But of course, since Christ was raised from the dead, and this is much of the glory of the gospel, if they have embraced Christ as Savior, they will never perish. Now, I know that because... John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And more than that, in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, verse 19 kind of gives a, a summation or a conclusion of all this. It, it says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead, you're, the Christianity is just a, a life of religious delusion. Um, we thought our message was true, but it is not. We thought the effects that it produced would be transforming, but they are not. We thought that we would be delivered from our sins, but we are still in our sins. We thought that we would not perish, but we will perish. We're the most miserable creatures on earth. We're deluded about the future, if all of those things are true, if there is no resurrection from the dead. However, Paul, in responding to uh, these um, resurrection deniers, really helps to see how important and how glorious the raising of Christ is. We, we see here that it is a historical fact that's central to the gospel, and, and we see it to be in Christ does include assurance of forgiveness for our sins, and we see that it does include the assurance that we will never perish. Um, however, not however, also, um, I want to just kind of close with a thought about how to benefit from the reality of the the resurrection. 
because it's uh, today's Easter. We're all coming together and, and wishing each other happy Easter, which is good. And we're focusing on this great redemptive event. And I was just thinking how, how sad it would be for someone to come here and we're celebrating Easter and, and, and in your soul or in their soul not to have experienced the power of the resurrection. And I was thinking how sad it would be if there's someone here who cannot say that your great desire in life is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That would be sad for to be here in a place like this and, and consider the resurrection, have someone here that has not experienced the power of the resurrection in, in their own soul. So I want to close by just recalling to your mind, I, I use the word closing advisedly here, but I want to close by recalling to your mind just a, an experience from the Apostle Paul in Athens that I think may be helpful in terms of benefiting from the resurrection. He was waiting. He was in Athens. He was waiting for his companions. And his spirit was provoked uh, within him because the city was infested with idols. They were everywhere. And they displaced the one true God as the object of worship. So he preaches a sermon to them. And he starts out by displaying the character of God before all these people. I won't share everything that he said. He begins by, by telling them God who made the world and all things in it. So the God he's representing, he says, he made the world and all things in it. That had to be an attention getter. And then he says, Lord of, he's Lord of heaven and earth. And he goes on and he says he does not dwell in temples made with hands, which means that he's fully present in all places at all times. So he made the world and he's fully present in all places at all times. And then he said he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, which, which is to say their ongoing existence, everyone's ongoing existence is completely dependent upon the being of God. When he squeezes the air hose, you can have the greatest medical team around you. It's over. We have our, 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 our living and existence and being in him. Well, then he gets to verse 30. And in light of this, in, in light of being impressed with the grandeur and the reality of the, the one true God, Paul says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. It's a command. He's saying in, in light of this, he is declaring that everyone should repent. This is this is present tense, which means it's still applicable. And all people everywhere means all people everywhere. So it's comprehensive. It includes everyone who has an existence. You and I have discussions about uh, maybe not, not to want to live in this particular area because we don't like the laws here. We don't like the political leadership here. Let's go somewhere else where it's different. But, but nobody can run from the jurisdiction of the being of God because he's the moral governor of the universe. There's nowhere you can go to get outside of his jurisdiction. And the command to repent means that if you have not obeyed God, you are in rebellion against him. I don't know if most people think that way. If you haven't repented, you're in rebellion against the moral governor of the universe who said that you should repent, who declared that you should repent. Now, <clears throat> you may be thinking, what does it mean to repent? And basically means to change one's mind. But repentance is a, is a doctrine that has relationship to sin. It's changing one's mind about sin. It's being bothered about sin and wanting to be delivered from sin and then turning and trusting and relying on the person of Christ. So repentance is a doctrine understood in relationship to sin. That's at the heart and the center of the gospel. Now you would think this is enough. Paul placards the character of God before them, but he goes on and says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, but having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. 
That's a reference to the future final day. And that will come. And that's a day, according to the Bible, when wrath will be poured out on all people who remain unrepentant. The book of Revelation helps to understand a little bit about what that day is like. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's the day when Christ will be the judge. Now, here is the thing. If you refuse to obey this command, you will join with those people on that day who are all fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb. You you will be with them. I've shared before that uh, I used to have a subscription to World Magazine, and uh, I lost the the, um, one issue. It was had to do with um, 9-11, right after uh, the bombings of the Twin Towers. And there's this, there's this picture, and there's, there's a crowd of people running, and it's kind of uh, apocalyptic, and I'm, I'm probably reading into it a little bit. But you see all these people running, and I'm thinking, okay, you've got, you've got diversity here, right? You've got men, you've got women, you've got people that are probably rich, you've got people that are probably poor, you've got ethnic diversity. So here you've got a crowd of people that are running, and there's diversity, but what stands out now is their unity. They're, they're all fleeing the same thing. They're, they're all running from this destruction. And if you don't repent of your sins, the day will come when you will, you will join, you'll be compelled to join with those who are fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb. So my, my plea is simply this. If you're here this morning, and this is really only one kind of person, if you're here this morning and you're really bothered by your sin, I mean, that has, that has to be the starting point. You're bothered by the reality of your sin. And you have a perception in your soul of the infinite mercy of God through the being of Christ. And then you turn and rely on Christ. You will be delivered from the penalty and power of sin. And Christ will receive you because that's what he does to repentant sinners. Any any of us here that are saved is because we are sinners. We repented and we cast ourselves on Christ alone to save us. So if you do that, he will receive you. And I know that he will forgive you for for all of your sins because Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You will not die in your sins, but be forgiven for your sins. And for sure you'll be delivered from the wrath to come because Paul, wrote to the Thessalonians and he says how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come he's the only one that delivers from the wrath to come and he delivers everyone who repents everyone who is bothered about their sin and turns honestly and truly and embraces Christ alone as savior well let us pray Father, we do thank you this day for um, the resurrection. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its certainty. We are aware of a, a certain coming day of judgment, but we also are aware that in Christ and in Christ alone, we are delivered from that. I pray if there's any who have not repented, who have not obeyed your command, that you would show them how good you are, how wise you are, that you would impress upon them the necessity and the urgency of dealing with the eternal state of their souls. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.